Agenda to Medicine today. This is John Murphy. My pleasure to welcome to this podcast two special guests, Dr. William Wagner, Director of the McGowan Institute for Agenda Medicine. Dr. Wagner is also a distinguished professor of surgery, bioengineering, and chemical engineering. Also with the podcast today is Christine Kretz. Christine is Vice President of Programs and Partnerships, International Space Station, U.S. National Laboratory. So the topic of the discussion is about opportunities for medical technology enhancement in zero gravity. The specific focus is a recently released report, Opportunities for Biomanufacturing in Low-Earth Orbit, Current Status, and Future Direction. But Christine, let me begin with you. What is the impetus for this particular study? The impetus for this study was really the expanded capabilities on the space station related to biotech. And so with the continued interest in using the International Space Station and low Earth orbit for improving life on Earth, there's to us no better way than to look into the ways biotech can be improved using the LEO capabilities. And with more and more hardware available on the space station to do work, it seemed like the right time to really dive into how to best use those facilities. So what's the background in terms of medical advances that might be possibly available through low-Earth orbit, zero gravity? Well, there have been a lot of things that have gone on in space. The space station is now 21 years old. The International Space Station's U.S. National Laboratory, the team that I work with called CASIS, which is the Center for Advancement of Science in Space, has been working together with partners for over 10 years. And during that time, both NASA and all of the partners that do work in space and research have been making some interesting inroads. If you think about using the astronauts as test subjects, and we're grateful for their joining into the research with themselves, there's been work including the work that the twin study with astronaut Scott Kelly and his brother to look into the genomics of how the microgravity affects people And that microgravity and the environment of space actually to age astronauts in the way that an individual on Earth would age, but at a faster rate. So that leads into lots of research that can be leveraged to look into things that might be similar to aging, whether it's bone density, muscle loss, changes in eyesight, and neuroscience kinds of efforts. All of those kinds of studies have been started and have been working over the past 10 to 20 years on the space station with lots of data and lots of information that have led us to the place where we are now to do even deeper and more insightful research, including into areas that wouldn't have been possible before. And there's no expert like Dr. Wagner in regenerative medicine to talk about the kinds of differences that we can have using the microgravity environment in areas of regenerative medicine. Dr. Wagner, relative to using the space station, I have the impression that one of the breakthroughs that made this feasible is that the cost of payloads has gone way down. Is that correct? Yeah, that's a general macro trend that 
has a direct influence on every business model having to do with low Earth orbit. So with some business models like space tourism, it'll probably have a more direct and quick impact, but it, it's an across the board effect. And in fact, things like space tourism, the earlier models that are implemented as, as they generate more activity, they have a positive feedback and you have this virtuous loop where things continue to get less and less expensive. I mean, that's usually how it happens in economics. As that cost goes down, it opens up more and more possibilities for a given business model to, for instance, send stem cells up into microgravity in low Earth orbit, have some value add and bring them back down. You know, a key part of that would be the expense and going up and coming back. And if that expense gets smaller, it opens up possibilities. Let me jump in there to add another comment, just simply the access that allows for that. So when we started working with Dr. Wagner a couple of years ago, the idea that a private astronaut could go and do work in space was on the horizon, but not there yet. And now you're reading in the news that people are going to space because there are more avenues to get there. So it might be simply for tourism, but the idea that there's a rocket available, that there's access, that there's a way to get to the space station. And in this year alone, we started sending our own U.S. astronauts to the space station from Florida again. They haven't flown from our shore since the shuttle system and they would go to Russia to fly to the space station. So there's been some work on simulated microgravity. Why is it preferred to use the absolute microgravity of the space station compared to simulated systems on Earth, Dr. Wagner? Well, it is simulated, so it's not an exact match. You've zeroed out the gravity or buoyancy force but that's not the same. There's other forces that are in play to make that happen. The bigger reason though, is a question of volume. So you really can't, at least at this point, simulate large enough volumes for it to be feasible for a lot of the biomedical technology development, like that we're talking about. That being said, I think it's a useful tool to explore some of these phenomena. And there's actually a very nice literature that has uh, taken observations that were made in orbit and tried to reproduce and to examine further on Earth. So I don't want to dismiss the tool. I think it's important, but it's not quite the same. So what is the state of science and technology relative to zero gravity in medicine? That's a big question. So we put together a workshop with about 150 thought leaders from around the country to try and nail down exactly that question. Where do we stand today in terms of medical technology development in low earth orbit? What looks the most promising? Where could we see a potential business model value add developing? And to be brief, there were a couple of key areas. One was stem cells, which I mentioned before. So leveraging stem cell behavior and microgravity to reproduce more stem cells to get stem cells to behave in a certain way where they secrete products that they wouldn't otherwise secrete. So basically capitalizing on stem cell behavioral differences in microgravity, that's one area. A second area is microphysiological systems. So there's been a, a series of experiments that have been funded in part by the NIH 
of these organs on a chip that have gone up into orbit and have been studied and shown in many cases to develop certain aspects of disease, osteoporosis, sarcopenia, renal disease, certain aspects develop in microgravity. So if you are a pharma company and you have a drug that you would like to test that inhibits the development of certain of these pathologies, you might be able to do that in an accelerated fashion through the use of microgravity. I'm glossing over a lot there, but that's the basic idea. Uh, the third one is in this general biomaterials self-assembly area. So we know that uh, crystal formation can happen in a much more perfect fashion when you don't have gravity effects and buoyancy effects. So you're expanding that out and looking at, you know, metals, looking at polymers, looking at self-assembling biological systems like lipids or amphiphilic materials that come together in a certain way under gravity, and they do it differently in microgravity. And then related to that would be 3D printing, where you're able to work with weaker materials, materials that would otherwise collapse under their weight, form a puddle maybe, can maintain shapes and a higher level of precision and a smaller scale in microgravity. And that could have implications for uh, rapid prototyping and 3D printing in the biological space. So activities on the space station are astronaut driven. It seems to me that it's being, being there's lots of tests need to be run that automation perhaps would replace the astronauts for some of these studies. There are a lot of studies where astronauts' hands are, are needed, right? So things that need to be pipetted or things that are mouth studies and things that have to have human interaction. There are already a number of companies that are implementation partners that are automating things in a lab called a cube lab. And so they're really very good at engineering some of the kinds of technologies that could be made more specific because it's going to be the same every time through automation. And that's going to become more important. So if you're really going to manufacture something in space, you have to have a quality control and a consistency so that you get back results that are meaningful. So there are implementation partners already working on that. We're going to need to do more of it, and I think we're going to get to a point where in manufacturing we're going to get into not just automation but some robotics and I would venture to say some AI as we start working with the data and the capabilities eventually in space. So where does the Food and Drug Administration come into this picture? It certainly comes in before any marketing takes place of anything. I mean, that's their official role. But they would come in at an earlier point than that as one contemplated you know, business model, like I said before, with, say, stem cell products being developed in microgravity. The whole material chain of command, all of the aspects that would be controlled on Earth would similarly need to be controlled in orbit. And uh, verification that no untoward effects have happened to whatever the material or biologic is. That being said, when you're talking about a process of going into low Earth orbit and back, it's hard to imagine a more controlled environment throughout the process. Things and variables are very carefully monitored and kept track of. In other words, quality management systems that are in place are things that, you know, the FDA would want to see. 
So there, there certainly would be questions about what changes might have happened in the microgravity environment and how do you characterize that. But in terms of the general quality management system that would be in place, I think it'd be very amenable to working with the FDA on products developed in microgravity. And notice that in your report, you talk about the, we're at an inflection point where areas can converge and capitalize on unique advantages that each offers. Can you elaborate on that a little bit? As Christine said earlier, what's happened in the past couple of years has been remarkable. If you go to the UNOOSA, they keep track of objects going into space, and that curve has gone exponential in the past couple of years. And you can see it just watching news television. You'll, you'll see every couple of days, there'll be some very relevant space news. So clearly access is at this inflection point where it's becoming more common, becoming less expensive and really ramping up in a substantial way that the next 10 years is going to be very different from the previous 10 years without question. And in biomedical technology, it's been on a pretty steep climb here over the past couple of decades. But you know, you're seeing it, I, I think we saw globally with the pandemic, how rapidly we were able to put together vaccines 20 years ago, that would not have been the case. So our ability to manipulate genetic information, you know, CRISPR-Cas systems by which we can very specifically edit genetic code, our access to increasingly sophisticated materials and medical devices, and our understanding of cellular mechanisms still have a ways to go, a long way to go, but we're able to do things like we haven't done before. So that you have these two curves rapidly increasing and now beginning to touch one another. And the synergies that might exist are, are really enticing to think about. And what, what's really neat is that there's so much that we don't understand that needs to be evaluated, but we're now having the tools to be able to do that in a very powerful way. So what's the future hold in terms of these studies? So let me talk a little bit about how long the space station is going to be there. The Congress and NASA have been discussing extending the life of the International Space Station as far as 2030, and that allows for continued time and research on the space station. But in addition, NASA has put out something as a request for information about options for replacing the space station, and those will be called CLDs, Commercial LEO Destinations. And the responses for those to NASA have been pretty plentiful with a lot of very interested participants in making the next space station. And it could be one or it could be multiple stations that would host astronauts, researchers, and manufacture in low Earth orbit. An example is that Axiom Space already has the ability to add a module onto the existing space station, and their plan is that that would eventually decouple and become a freestanding space station. So that's how far along some of the discussions are, so that we know that we will continue to have a platform to work on. Now, what comes from that is really going to be the result of excellent researchers and people in the field like Dr. Wagner. Dr. Wagner, what's your vision in terms of future activities? Well, first, I think there's intellectual property that can be nailed down with future missions. Speaking generally, I think one might envision that there might be stem cell products coming from microgravity that utilize the cellular response 
to that environment to create a value add, to create the product. With self-assembly processes, there's already a company working on surface-based assembly for artificial retina development that offers promise. And it also provides a model for other highly controlled surface development, which when you're talking about biological molecules that are very complex and difficult to orient and to maintain activity, that may lead to a number of different options. And then, you know, the 3D printing obviously has broader implications for space exploration, for astronaut health. And I think as that general field moves forward in the space environment, I think there will be applications that will become apparent for terrestrial use. Christine, what's NASA's interest in biomanufacturing? This in-space production, as it's really called by the NASA and science community, includes this very specialized area of biomanufacturing. And it has caught the attention of the NASA administration in such a way that their most recent NRA, which is their research announcement call for proposals, was specific to in-space production and has attracted a lot of attention in biomanufacturing. So the fact that CASIS, the national lab, is putting out call for proposals to fund some research there, but in even bigger dollars, NASA is putting money behind that and working collaboratively with the national lab is really an indication of, first of all, the, the impact that, that Bill and the team in telling this story and creating a narrative that got the attention of a lot of people who are saying that they can see this being important. But more than that, that they have put out calls for proposals to support this research, and there will be more. So that's really an excellent indication of support for the initiatives that, that Bill and others are driving in this area. Thank you for joining us today and sharing this vision and accomplishments relative to biomanufacturing of low earth orbit. We welcome suggestions for future podcasts. You can reach us at mail at regenerativemedicinetoday.com. Thank you. Mm-hmm.